Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. Becoming your authentic self, finding your true voice. These are such cliches. I mean, we've seen these ideas play central roles in countless movies and TV shows where the characters learn to just be themselves. Random side note here. I was just on a cross-country flight the other day, and I binged season two of the HBO show Hacks, which is all about finding your voice. And they, I should say, managed to do it in a, in a non-hackneyed and hilarious way, which gets me back to my point, which is this. It's hard to talk about authenticity without lapsing into tired tropes. But there is a reason why it's such an important issue. It is only when you strip away your fears, your defenses, your habits, your ancient storylines that you can be real and spontaneous. And that is the key to having good relationships with other people, which of course, is the key to being healthy and happy. In spiritual circles, they refer to this as opening your heart. I call it pulling your head out of your ass. I say all of this because it very much relates to my guests today. I have known the anxiety expert, Dr. Luana Marquez, for a few years now. She's been on this show a couple of times. Actually, you should go back and listen to those episodes. We'll put links in the show notes. Not only because those episodes are super helpful, but also because you will hear a real transformation in Luana herself. When I first met her three years ago, she came off as extremely competent and massively helpful, especially for somebody like me who really struggles with anxiety. The difference now is she still has the competency and the helpfulness in spades, but something has changed in a good way. She seems realer, more relaxed, more herself. A little bit more about Dr. Luana Marquez before we dive in. You can hear this for yourself. She's an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, founder and director of Community Psychiatry Pride at Massachusetts General Hospital, and a former president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, which, as I often joke, sounds like a, a very fun group. She has a new book called Bold Move, A Three-Step Plan to Transform Anxiety. In it, she gets very personal in ways that she's never really attempted before. And in this conversation, we talk about Luana's personal story growing up in Brazil and struggling with anxiety and poverty, what it means to live boldly, what psychological avoidance is and the three R's of avoidance, Luana's three-step plan to transform anxiety. Those three steps are shift, approach, and align. I'll let her unpack those. How to be comfortably uncomfortable, why the brain is a terrible predictor, why being bold is not the same as being fearless, why social support is the number one buffer across any mental health issue, how aligning your daily actions with your values can help you with anxiety, uh, how to identify your values by looking at your pain, and what Luana means by being the water, not the rock. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Dr. Luana Marquez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Excited to be here. I should have said welcome back. You're a frequent flyer. I'm proud of that. (laughs) (laughs) It is the third time, isn't it? I can't believe it. Yes, yes. I was saying to you before we began recording that I think I probably get more out of these conversations than you do, given my history of anxiety. So uh, thanks for putting up with me. It is a pleasure to be here, and it's totally mutual. So it'll be fun. So you've got a new book. Congratulations. It's called Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power filled with all these science-based skills. I want to dive very deeply into the book, but let me ask you, and and this is in the book, but let me just ask you about your personal background here, because you don't come from the United States. You know, you're associated with Harvard these days, but your, your background wasn't super cushy. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how that led you to get interested in anxiety in the first place. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Brazil in a family that chaos is the only thing that we knew. I, you know, this is the first time I actually talk publicly about this. Um, the book is sort of my coming out of the closet with myself, you know, as my mom, my sister and I, um, after my father left and it was pretty tough. Like growing up was, it was not easy. There were times that food was scarce, not often, but there were moments that I just thought life was going to be too much. And as I wrote the book, I realized then It's funny, I've been a therapist here at Harvard for almost 20 years, and my patients have asked me, you know, have you ever had a panic attack? And I'd say, no, I've not had a panic attack. But I realized that as a kid, I got rushed to the hospital all the time with this asthma attacks. And as I was writing the book, I was like, oh my God, I was having panic attacks. They were not asthma attacks. They were always after a fight between my parents where there was a lot of domestic violence. And so... It was a long journey. Um, I had the privilege of a grandmother that taught me a lot of the skills during the book. 
I eventually got out of Brazil, got here and continued to fight sort of to pursue whatever I thought was the American dream for me, which landed me at Harvard. And for the past 10 years, I've been working in inner city, taking the skills during the book and working with organizations that serve primarily diverse youth. And about a year and a half ago, I was talking to you and we we're talking about this book that I had in my brain. And you said, you have to write this book. And I was so scared. And I was like, do I really got this? But here we are. The book is going to come out and it's 100% me in the book because I've never, I think, talked about before. I love that. I love that. Let me just stay in, in Brazil in your childhood for a second here. So you described what at the time you thought were asthma attacks, which you now, in hindsight, with your expertise, believe were panic attacks. So there's, as I understand it, and as I've experienced it personally, there's panic, which you might call sort of high anxiety or anxiety on steroids. And, and then there's more garden variety anxiety, which I also live with a kind of background static of fear and worry. Is that an experience that you share? So I was an anxious child. I remember vividly having thoughts and having conversations about 12 with my mom of like, I can't go to school. If I go to school, I'm going to come back and you're not going to be here. I remember vividly whenever things were tough, I would eat my anxiety. I just like, there's this cookies in Brazil that I love. And I just certainly would dare. And so I was like, I think I had a heightened baseline of anxiety. And I think I managed it by like going to school and trying really hard and, and all those things. And then there were moments like you're describing that I think, and it's so common actually, there's research on this, which is so crazy that I've done the research on this and never associated with myself. There is research that in the Latino community, we're more likely to talk about physical symptoms of anxiety. So you would describe stomachache, headaches, asthma, versus actually calling it a panic attack. And I had published on this, but never applied to myself. And, and it wasn't until the book that I was like, but then my father left and I had no asthma. It disappeared. Like, how, how is that possible? Asthma doesn't disappear that way. So I have both. To answer your question in a long-winded way, I still live with a grade of anxiety every day. I just found a way to make it work for me most of the time, not all the time. There's nothing like, I mean, I hate writing books. I do it anyway, but there's nothing like writing a book to figure shit out. I know it's painful to write a book, but it was the best therapy I had in my life. I have to tell yeah. you, like I wrote yes. this book between yes. like four and seven in the morning and I just got to like sit with myself naked and go, what's behind the curtain? And it's fascinating to just look and, and allow yourself to, to see what's there. Fascinating therapy for you and also just all adds up to useful information and coping skills for the rest of us. So it's kind of useful on many levels. You mentioned your, specifically, you mentioned your grandmother, but in some of the supporting materials for the book, you talk about how some of the skills you teach today were picked up from both your grandmother and your mother. And some of these skills turned out to be, uh, you know, validated by science. Can you just put a little meat on the bone there and describe that? Yeah. So one of the things that my mom taught me is this idea of what we know today to be, you know, an emotion regulation skill, which is this idea that when you feel anxious and distressed, instead of walking away and avoiding emotions, you need to go towards them. And the, the picture in my mind is, you know, my mom is trying to, my father leaves and it's really challenging. And now she has to like figure out how to feed us. 
And I remember moments that she would come home and you could see on her face that she just wanted to crumble. But she would just look at us, she'd cook something, and then she would do whatever was the next thing that was going to the next day get us a little better. You know, she created this sewing company and then she sold hangers and then she sold brooms and then she worked in a butcher. But all of it was like not without pain. Like being a kid and being the oldest, I remember seeing the pain there and going, how does she keep doing this? And so there was the first experience of this like strong worth ethic that's aligned with values towards something that's really important, but painful. I guess that that's what I learned from her. And I think that's the work ethic that got me here, actually. If I really have to sit with it, I never quit. Like, my mom never quit. And then my grandmother is just this, like, you know, she came in my life when I was about 14, 15. She is not my official grandmother. My mom dated my stepdad, so she called my grandmother. And I lived with her for about two years. And at first, I moved from a little town in Brazil, Governador Valadares to Belo Horizonte. And I went from, like life is okay, we are safe, now we had a safe net home with my stepdad, to this big city, and like being terrified and afraid of strangers, which nobody believes when I say this as an adult, because I'm super outgoing, but like, I did not want to talk to people, like they were scary to me, and my grandmother just said, you know what, we're just going to go to the mall, and then she forced me to talk to people, the same way I sort of forced you to be in an elevator. Kind of sort of the same ideas. <laughs> now that I think about it, you might reflect about it. Because she didn't give me much of an option. It was like, you know what? You're doing this. And she would just help me do two things. She taught me how to approach instead of avoid and to f- go towards that anxiety. And the second thing was cognitive flexibility, right? Science talks a ton about the power of cognitive flexibility. But all she did is I'd be crying and upset. And she says, is there a different way to think about this? Can you see this in a different angle? And it would force me to see different scenarios in the world, which is all there is, is cognitive therapy. So she was doing cognitive behavioral therapy with you before that was even a thing? Before that was even a thing with no college education, just being herself. And that's what I love about this. It's like their skills. You know, we make therapy such a big thing, but like their skills that we can learn. And that's why I teach them in inner city, because we can teach paraprofessionals to do this. Like my grandmother taught me how to do it. Just to round out your biography here, you work hard in college, you end up in the States. How did you decide to dedicate your life to studying and treating anxiety and panic? So I don't know if the anxiety and panic were actually very thoughtful. So I chose psychology. So I came, I actually did college in the U.S. I came as an exchange student, went back to Brazil, and then came back. And I was pre-med and also taking psychology classes. And I joke you not, I went to Brazil to talk to my grandmother over my holiday and was talking about this idea that, you know, I, did I really want to be a physician of this? And, and she looks at me and says, it's simple. You take psychology classes and, and you take biology classes. Whatever is easier in your brain and you're happier, that's what you do. Like, you don't have to struggle with this. And so I looked at her and I said, well, I get D's in biochemistry. I get A's without studying psychology. She's like, then become a psychologist. There is no struggle. And I was like, I, I, I needed her permission. To be honest, as an adult, I needed her permission. And so then I went forward and I started to do research and early on worked on OCD. Then I worked on PTSD, then social phobia, then 
I pretty much studied and worked in all across the anxiety disorders. And I landed probably in anxiety and panic because I'm an anxious person. And I like seeing people get better. And exposure works. Exposure works. Well, that leads me to this next question. I think I think exposure works will probably be part of the answer to this question. But the title of the book is Bold Move. So what do you, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to, to live boldly? To me, it means you show up fully as you. You are clear on what you want out of life. And you every day take a step towards those things, going towards discomfort. Like you, you sort of bring anxiety along and you approach instead of avoid. But it's your recipe. Like it's one of the things I want people to understand when I'm talking about bold move. It's not like just doing grand things out of your you know comfort zone all the time. It could be small. I think for some people, being able to go on a date feels like a bold move. For some people, being able to ask for a raise or just even telling their partner, I'm upset with you, right? But it is going towards discomfort instead of just running away from it. Because you and I know really well, like running away from anxiety doesn't work. It just comes along and runs faster. Well, as you've explained to me before, when you avoid what you're anxious about, it makes the source of your anxiety worse. It makes it all scarier. You're teaching the brain that you have to avoid this. It's so scary. Yeah. I mean, the brain then starts to anticipate anything related to it, creates a narrative that's going to be worse. And next thing you know, you're not even close to that thing that was scary because you think you're going to be eaten by a lion when it's perceived threat, not a real lion. So what we're talking about here, there's a term you use. I think it applies to what we're discussing here, but you'll correct me. Psychological avoidance. That's exactly what we're talking about. So I define psychological avoidance as anything that we do that has a function of bringing our emotional temperature down fast, but long-term gets us stuck, right? If we apply this to when I was 15 with my grandmother, had my grandmother not forced me to talk to strangers and had I been allowed to just stay at home and not make friends, I very likely would have developed social phobia and very likely would not be sitting here with you, right? Because I would have felt better, right? I sitting at home felt much more comfortable than going to the mall and talking to strangers. But the entire trajectory of my life would have changed. And, and I not only believe this personally, Dan, but if you look at the data on sociophobia, around that time, 15 to 18, is when people that avoid make less money overall in their life. They choose educations. There are more avoidance related. Like quality of life gets worse if you avoid. You say there are three R's of avoidance. What, what are those? The reason I coined the three R's before I even share what they are is important, which is whenever we feel discomfort, anyone is going to have some symptoms of fight, flight, or freeze, right? And most of us have heard of fight, flight, or freeze. It's sort of your biological response to threat. Now, in modern life, we are having the same response to perceived threat. So a presentation, going on a date. And the three ways we avoid is to react, the first R. This is what I do, by the way. So reacting is going towards the threat to eliminate that threat. You want to basically bring your anxiety down no matter what by going towards it. So for me, this just happened a week ago. I was going to a conference and I got this email that has such politics behind them that this person will be upset and this person will be upset. And, this. and so I get the email. My heart starts to bother them in a plane. 
I take a screenshot of this. I send to my husband and David goes, do not respond. It's reacting and that's avoidance. <laughs> I was typing the response, by the way, <laughs> right? I didn't want to feel the discomfort of having to wait to figure out what I was going to do about this email. Let me jump in for there a second, because I think I think some people might hear, and I hate interrupting people, but you're on something interesting. A lot of people might hear react and say, well, how is that avoidance? You're reacting to the thing. You're You're running right toward it. Because the only function of what I was doing was actually to bring down my anxiety. I was not being thoughtful. I was not composing an email that actually would give me the outcome I want. And I was not going to deal with the conflict. I was basically pushing away conflict by just literally reacting. Right. And, and we do this often. I was just talking today with a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who I really loved. This woman was amazing. And she says, do you know what I do? I just do a lot of my work. When I'm anxious, I do more and I do more and I do more. And she's like, I just react so I feel better. And I said, how do you feel? She's like, exhausted and tired. And I said, that's it. Like sometimes we're doing good things, but the function of those things is to eliminate discomfort, but they only lead to discomfort. So let me clarify, because I love to ask that question. There's two pieces on the psychological avoidance. One is what is the function of my behavior? Why am I doing this? Is it to feel better fast? The second one is, is this a price tag with this? Right? I've got myself in a lot of trouble writing emails fast. A lot of trouble. I've got called in by some superiors at MassGen and going, you know what? You're a little impulsive. Like, we can't have that. And that's why that makes it psychological avoidance. Does that help a little bit? Yes. It's like the psychological equivalent of a comb over. It's like you're hiding <laughs> the you're you're hiding the problem with a lot of, you know, fancy moves. Oh my God, I love that. That's exactly right. And it looks so good for society. And you just keep doing it until you're like run down and not doing it well. All right. So react. That's the first R of avoidance. The second R is retreat. Retreat. So retreat is moving away from discomfort. So you feel anxious, you feel the stress. This is my husband's favorite. It is you get that email that upsets you. I would just email back fast. David will open the email, and that's what he told me. He'll put in a, in a second screen, and he just leaves it there. And then he starts to think about it. He starts to illuminate, what if I do this? And what if I do that? And all of those thoughts help him sort of avoid the fact that the email itself made him anxious. So, like, retreating really is... Instead of going on a date, you stay home because you're just not feeling well, right? It tends to be more on the thinking than the action. React tends to be like going towards it. Retreating tends to be more in the thinking. Again, just to make yourself feel better. And then finally, remaining. Remaining, the best way to think about it is the deer on the headlight. Something happens, it makes you anxious, and you just don't know what to do. You freeze. People remain in jobs they don't like. People remain in relationships they don't like. They know. And the interesting thing about remaining is I never met somebody that is stuck on remaining, that they're just avoiding and staying put, that didn't know how bad it felt. Like people do this in jobs for years. They're going to their job, they're going to their job, and they're like, no, it's not the best job. But just the idea of something else, they're like, no, just stay put. Okay, so I think we've defined the problem reasonably well. I'm tempted to move into the promised three-step plan. Is there more to say about the problem writ large before we move into the three aspects of your plan, which include shift, approach, and align? No, I just, I was wondering what you're thinking about. You just had this pause on, on avoidance, and I was like, what is Dan thinking about? It was just a good, a good pause there. I 
am really good at all those forms of avoidance. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so yeah, I can do the react, which anger is a good one for me. It's been explained to me that anger is a secondary emotion. And it's often motivated by fear. And so I get scared or threatened by something and I go right to anger and it never makes anything better. Retreating where I'm just, you know, putting my head in the sand and thinking about it endlessly, but not doing anything about it. And then remaining where I'm just completely paralyzed. I had an experience I remember a long time ago, I actually wrote about this in my first book, where I got a very charismatic new boss at, at ABC News, a guy named Ben Sherwood, who's no longer at ABC News, but we're still in touch. He's still a friend. But when he came on the scene, I was just so terrified by his presence that I just kind of went limp and did nothing. And it actually hurt my relationship with him. It hurt my career. And so there, there are many ways to avoid anxiety. And I feel like I might have a PhD in all three of them. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I love that you shared all three though, because we all tend to have a flavor, but we do all of them. And the examples you just gave are great because they all have a cost. Right? And they tend to repeat, right? And I don't know about your life, but for me, like I tend to avoid the same way until I'm like done with it. Like gotta break this. And so that's why we have the three skills. Are you still getting pulled into the office at Mass General where you work and told that you're too impulsive or have you figured out a way, another way? You know, I figured out a different way. And lots of things have changed at Mass General. And one of them is the, the primary person leading the department has changed. So I think that has helped. But I also found my voice. I think the, some of the experiences I've had at Mass General have been really upsetting. And I talk about them in the book. And so now I just don't accept them. I just don't react as much. And so when I'm threatened the same way, sort of, you know, you go to anger, I go to reacting this way. But now I go, this really hurt me. And I'm not ready to talk about it, but I would still respond sometimes, but I would just respond with, you're hurting me. And this doesn't feel okay. You know, my mother was a pioneering physician at Mass General for several decades. She was in the pathology department. She was also an editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. And she was pretty, when I say pioneering, I mean, there were not a lot of women who were full professors at Harvard in that time. I think she started working in the 70s at Mass General. And, you know, I've heard her talk many times about how hard it is to be a woman in that environment. It really is. It probably got a little better since your mom started, but it's still tough. I mean, I had one point and say to me at one point, like, you know, somebody had complained about something that I had done. I basically gave feedback and this person felt like the feedback was too rough. And a senior male says, you know, you're only being reprimanded because you're a woman. I mean, if you're a man, nobody would care, but you need to act more like, you know, a girl, less like mm. a boy. And I was like, What? Wait, what? <laughs> what makes you think it's okay to even say that, right? And at that point, I just quit that job. I was like, nope, I'm not working for you anymore. That's for sure. But it's a tough environment still. I can't say it's getting better. Our new chief is incredible. And so it is getting better, at least in our department. But it's, it's a tough system. It's crazy that that person said the quiet part out loud. I mean, we, we know that there's a double standard and that women who are, you know, I've had guests on this show who've talked about, you know, that if you're a woman and you display anger, it's viewed as shrill and unacceptable. And if you're a man who displays anger, it's viewed as decisive and strong. Coming up, Dr. Luana Marquez talks about her three-part plan to transform anxiety 
understanding why it's nearly impossible to shift, which is the first step when you're in a state of panic and what to do about that, and why the brain is such a terrible predictor. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. The I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. All right. Well, let's talk about what we can do about anxiety, because as I've said, you really do have this three-part plan, and there's so much in here, and I want to carve out enough time to really live in each of these aspects of the plan. And the, the first is shift. So what do you mean when you say shift is the first step? So for a lot of us, including myself, when anxiety knocks on the door, our brain gets black and white. We predict the worst case scenario. We predict that we can't handle it. We get in the, what if I can't do it with this? What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm never going to be successful? And all of that happens because the way our brain functions, right? There's discomfort and our brain sort of like blocks out and uses our belief systems to sometimes predict the worst. Shift is the idea of looking at what you're saying to yourself, really pausing for a second and 
examining your thoughts. It's sort of like what my grandmother did with me, right? What she basically said was, is there another way to see the situation, right? And I really encourage people to like be able to understand that thoughts are not facts. In fact, we would never say to our friends what we say to ourselves. In fact, we would have no friends if we went to a friend and said, oh no, you're horrible. You can't do this. You're not good enough. You're never going to get a good job. You're not successful. And so shift is shifting our perspective, talking to ourselves as if we're talking to our best friends. So it's it's a reframing of your current thought patterns. It's an interrogation of your thoughts with this element of friendliness. Like you're channeling this mentor ability that it's easy for us to summon when we're talking to a friend, but rarely do we apply it to ourselves. Am I repeating that with some degree of accuracy? A hundred percent. So first you pause and you look what you're saying to yourself. Then you interrogate that thought, right? You ask, is is there another way to see this? Is there data to support this? And most of the time we arrive at conclusions that what we're saying to ourselves is pretty distorted. And then what do you do? You arrive at an alternative, more balanced view of the world. And that's where the friend list comes in. Can you talk to yourself with more kindness, with more compassion, with more authenticity in a way that is not so black and white? And ideally a little more data-driven. So there's a lot of data around the power of talking to yourself in a different way, reprogramming your inner dialogue. And we've had guests on the show who've talked about that from Ethan Cross to Kristen Neff, and we'll post some links to those shows in the show notes just so people can hear more about this specifically. I personally am very intrigued by this notion that you can sort of counter-program against your inner fear monger, your inner critic, your inner drill sergeant. It's been very powerful as a technique for me in my own life. Now I'm going to ask a question after I've speechified there for a second. The question (laughs) is, I find that when I'm in garden variety anxiety, putting my hand on my chest and being like, dude, you're good, just speaking to myself the way I would talk to my son or a friend, that really works. But if I'm in panic or peri-panic, close to panic, it's much harder. It's actually nearly impossible. Because when we're in panic, we're basically saying biologically, right, that if you think about the two parts of your brain that's competing for attention, you're thinking your prefrontal cortex, you're thinking brain and your lizard brain or amygdala, when one is on fully, it's almost like the other one is out for lunch, especially when the fear brain is on. If you're really, really on fear, your brain has only one function to protect you. And there is no way to think yourself out of a panic. It just, it's impossible. It's one of those things that whenever we're working with somebody and they says, well, but when I'm panicking, what do I say to myself? I said, no, at that point, we need to experience the panic. We need to approach the sensations. We need to not avoid the panic sensations because we want to train your brain that you're really not in danger. And the only way to go in there is through the amygdala. You cannot think your way out of a panic attack. I'm sure you've tried before. It's not possible. Okay, so let me just give you an example. You know, because I reached out to you personally when this started happening, I developed a pretty gnarly case uh, late last year of of claustrophobia or resurgence of a lifelong condition of claustrophobia, and I was having trouble getting on planes and elevators. It's gotten a lot better through exposure therapy. I mean, a lot better. This, this shit really works. And there are still challenges, still edges for me. So I had to get on a very small plane the other day after having been on a series of like regular planes and being fine. And I couldn't do it uh, or told myself I couldn't do it. And I tried, I got on the plane and then I got off. 
and booked a later flight. So what would have been the move there? Because I tried to muscle through with the amygdala and talking to myself, but I, it just, I was at the edge. Yeah. It's too high on your fear up there, Dan. Like for you, like from what I know, and we've talked about this, this is just too high. The experience that you're describing is equivalent for me to say to you right now, let's stop this podcast and let me put you in an MRI machine. And you'd be like, yeah, I'm never talking to you again. Hard like, pass. Yeah. Hard pass. Like there's just no way. And and so the brain, the way I think about it, it has a limit on what we can muscle through. Right. And that's the beauty of exposure therapy. You muscle through slowly. You don't go straight to the MRI machine because nobody gets better that way. That's just white knuckling. It's not actually exposing yourself. And so you found an edge. And so the only way is to go towards that edge is, you know, can you take smaller flights often? Can you simulate smaller places? But you'd have to do that enough before you got on that plane, because with your history of anxiety and, and what you've shared, like, that's just too much. You can't do it. And, and I want people to hear this, because often when that happens, we feel like a failure. We feel like, oh, my God, I was doing so well, and I regressed. It's not a regression. It's just that you're hitting a limit against how much of the exposure has worked. It's like when I had to go skydive. I had a fear of heights. And I learned this at Yosemite National Park and the end on the cables. Oh my God, I came down crying. It was awful. I don't want to think about that. I never went back to Yosemite. I should and do the cables. But that's how I learned I had a fear of heights. And I did really well on the roller coasters and this. And then when he got to skydiving, he took like a friend of mine who's a damn good psychologist to get me on that plane the first time. And I thought I was going to die. Like I thought I was going to die. But I went skydiving three times in a row that day. There was no way, because if I didn't do three times, I know what's going to happen. The next time the opportunity came, I just wouldn't do it, right? And it doesn't mean I want to go skydiving all the time, but like once you find the edge, you have to stay with the edge. And I can see how, how much you're liking my suggestions here. I can. No, <laughs> no, I do like your suggestions just because you know, I have so much confidence now because with you, you know, we you and I rode elevators together for the anxiety course that we produced jointly for the 10% Happier app. And that was before the big resurgence of claustrophobia that I had last fall. And then I, I worked with somebody local here, a psychologist who rides elevators with me at the Westchester Mall once in a while. And, you know, he talks to me before I get on planes. I don't really need any of that anymore. But I developed so much confidence through going from sheer brain blanked out terror to, you know, slowly, gently exposing myself over and over and seeing, yeah, I got comfortable. I mean, so I not only have confidence that I can work my edges, I have confidence that in the future, when or if I have another resurgence of this, like I can deal with it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, it really is comfortably uncomfortable, right? It doesn't go away completely. I think that's the, the thing that... People want me to be able to take their anxiety and discomfort completely away. It's impossible. Biologically, we can't. So that's why I wrote a book about avoidance. What we can take away is avoidance. And it might be always a little uncomfortable for you in a plane, but as long as you can get in and stay comfortably uncomfortable, you have a more meaningful life. Yes. Because life can get really small if you're just avoiding all the time. Oof. Yeah, that's for sure. Under the rubric of shift, uh, and you, you touched on this earlier, but I think it's worth fleshing it out a little bit more. In the part of the book where you're talking about shifting, you mentioned that the brain is a faulty predictive machine. Can you say a little bit more about that? 
It really is. Our brain is so powerful, but it only predicts to minimize discomfort in many ways. So the way we predict information is based on our history and what we know. So I'll give an example to illustrate this. Growing up, the way I talked about, and with my parents eventually splitting up and feeling like I couldn't really save my mom from domestic violence, I have this filter that basically says to me, I'm not enough. No matter what I do, I'm never going to be enough. And so that is the way my brain wants to predict information. And it does something so, so annoying. That's everybody I've ever worked with. So one day, I got this paper accepted to a really prestigious psychology journal. And I was first author. You know, for those of you that are not academic, it's a big deal. It takes a lot of time to do this stuff. My first thought is, oh, this paper only got accepted because other smart people are co-authors. I'm definitely not good enough. First thought, like the brain just like farted it. Like I, I hadn't even <laughs> caught it. It's like, it's like, what is this? Right. And so my brain is predicting that I'm not good enough based on something that anybody in the world says it's amazing. And, and it's doing because of my history. And that's what I mean. The brain is a faulty predictive machine. It's, it's predicting based on history to minimize discomfort, right? Which psychologists call dissonance. The brain doesn't like dissonance when two things don't match. In this case, you know, I can't be good enough and have a paper and I can't be not good enough. I have a paper accepted. So I just jumbled that information. Does that answer, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, we have this negativity bias, which makes sense. You know, we should be scanning for threats because especially when we evolved, there were a lot of threats in the environment. And yet it can give us a distorted view of reality. A hundred percent, because what we're scanning for perhaps at one point was a threat, but right now in that moment, is far from a threat. I mean, my example, getting a paper accepted, how is that a threat? But my brain thought it was. Yeah, well, we can turn anything in, you know, we can wear garbage colored glasses and turn anything into something nasty. It's a real special skill that our species has. <laughs> I do want to say, just speaking of bold, I've interviewed you three times on the show and then we will produce this course together. I wouldn't say I know you super well or that we know each other super well, but we've, I've been able to observe you longitudinally over several years. I'm struck by the boldness. You seem to have crossed some sort of threshold in terms of talking about your own life and your own mind with a degree of candor that seems new to me. So I just want to remark upon that and, and celebrate it. Oh, thank you. It is very new. It's very new. I, I had an experience right before and during when we were creating the anxiety course that we produced together. It really shook me to the core and made all the skills that we're talking about really come to a halt. And I had to sort of like sit and think about who am I really in the world and what do I want to do next? And how do I show up like me? For so long, I think I tried really hard to fit into this Harvard academic professional person that does this and this and this. And the the softer parts of me, I think the people that knew me well were there, but they were guarded and it just felt so, what is the word? Separate. Like, I think I just needed to integrate me. The me that you saw in the elevator is me. I show up fully with both parts, but it was missing the me that you're seeing today, which just feels good. I have to say, meeting was so helpful because it allowed me to really said, I think was the anxiety course, actually. I was hating things at Harvard MS General. 
but continue to do it. I was just going to do it because, you know, that's what you do. You're a good academic. And then meeting you, and you were such an incredible interviewer and a kind human being and, like, gave me time to talk. That was a moment that I was like, oh, my God, that's what it feels like to flow and be you. Because I didn't have to think about being me when I was working with you. I just was me. And that was the beginning of this transformation. And I think that's where I landed. And so thank you, Dan. Honestly, generally, you opened the door that like allowed me to integrate, which is not easy to do, but it feels good. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're probably giving me too much credit. But let me say that there is real... I think a lot of people struggle with this. You know, there's all kinds of anxiety and we've covered many of the flavors, but there's a lot of fear about being real, especially in an era where we're in this panopticon of social media and people are curating their lives. And so this this persona, this false front, we're encouraged to have it. We're encouraged to build a brand. Everybody's got to have their own brand. You know, it's not just today. You know, if you read the first couple of pages of catcher in the rye, you know, he's holding Caulfield's complaining about all the phonies around him. And that was way before the internet. This is just part of the human condition. And it takes, it takes a lot to actually, I don't love words like authenticity and vulnerability. I prefer sort of like realness or not bullshitting, but there's a lot of anxiety around that justifiably. So because you're worried that if you're rejected when you're being real, then that's a real rejection. So I, I think you're modeling a a kind of approach state by doing what you're doing. Thank you. And, and you know, I keep saying this to myself and my friends, like being bold is not being fearless. I'm scared every day. You know, I'm embarking on this whole new phase of my career that is public facing and writing this book and talking about my stuff. And every day I wake up and there's part of my body that's like, oh my God, if people don't like this and what is this? And I just, you know, I shift, I approach, I show up and I try to shop fully, but um can't say I'm not anxious. It's certainly there. Yes, I, that's really important. I've heard my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, quote some poet, maybe Emily Dickinson, I don't know who, and I'm not a huge poetry fan, as you can probably tell, but, <laughs> but the poet said something to the effect of, or the novelist, the writer said something to the effect of that she'd been terrified every day of her life and it never stopped her from doing anything. That's it. That I, I think if we can teach people that in general culture, because right? I think we're taught the opposite, that if you're scared, run away. If you're scared, stop doing it. If you're scared, it's too much. What if it's the opposite? What if it's like you're scared and there is a way to go towards that life that you want? Like that to me, that's, I, I don't know. I think that's why I'm sitting here with you today and not back in Brazil, you know, on a mediocre job, not happy. Yeah, I mean, wonder if we can turn anxiety into a signal for curiosity and perhaps an opportunity. Like, oh, this is the body getting nervous about something that maybe I should pay attention to, and maybe there's maybe there's something worthy of exploration here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where I love when you talk about meditation and and using meditation in that way, right? Instead of running for it, meditation allows you to sit and see what's happening without running, which I think is so powerful. Yes. I mean, it sucks, but it's better than the alternative. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> my... I mean, if you're going to feel anxious anyhow, might as well do something productive with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, you know? Yes. So we, we've been talking about shift, which is the first step in this three-step plan to work with anxiety. But before I move on to the next step, I believe the book says something about why shifting can fail in cases of discrimination. What do you mean by that? So the example I gave about 
my boss's comment about I needed to be softer like a girl and less like a man, right? There's no way to call this anything but <laughs> sexism at a minimum, right? There's there's no way I could shift my perspective that day. Or when I walked to the office one day in the first week of Mass General, oh my God, this is so embarrassing to say out loud, but it's in the book, so I might as well say it. I walked in, I was like very excited. I had just started there, you know, very feeling scared, being a Mass General, I'm Brazilian. And then somebody looks at me and says, oh my God, you look so Latina today. What the hell does that mean? What I heard is you don't fit in. You're not good enough. I actually ran home, changed my clothes, believe it or not, because I was so scared that I couldn't fit in. But in that moment, it's a microaggression. And as an adult now, not a beginning psychologist anymore, I'd have to say to somebody, wait a minute, that's not okay. And there isn't a shift in there that you can just tell another story for yourself. I think what it's dangerous, and I've worked with lots of clients this way, that you have moments like this, but then you use them against yourself and you actually make it much more challenging. Something is bad with me. And and then there, I think we can shift, right? In the interpretation of the event, but we need to face reality, sexism, discrimination, microaggression, those things, we shouldn't be making lemonades out of them. We should be talking about them. Right. So don't self-gaslight in the face of totally inappropriate and unfair behavior. You are the best at summarizing things appropriately. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. I just love that power that you have. I have no original ideas, but I can I can repeat them back. <laughs> Coming up, Luana talks about the second and third steps of her three-step plan. The second and third steps are approach and align. The role of social support in working with your anxiety and how to identify your values by looking at your pain. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique 
custom gifts, and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. All right, so we've talked about shift. That was a very key point, and I'm glad you made a shout out to my producer, Justine, who pointed that out to me, and so I'm, I'm glad I asked you about it. So let's move to the second step of the plan here. So the first, again, just to recapitulate, was shifting, not believing your thoughts necessarily, talking yourself, channeling the sanest part of your inner repertoire to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a friend or somebody that you really care about in your family. The second step is called approach. I think it's probably somewhat obvious, but let me give you the floor and describe what you mean by approach. So you and I have been talking about approach a lot. And usually I talk about approach as we've been talking about, which is exposure therapy. So the basic idea is when you're feeling uncomfortable, what you want to do is walk away from discomfort instead of avoiding your approach. In exposure therapy, we talk about the specific steps of approaching how to approach. But for most of us, we don't really need exposure therapy. We need to figure out how to go towards that discomfort. So in the book, I talk about a skill called opposite action. So anxiety has a mandate. That's always the case. Anxiety mandates you to do something. It mandated you to get off of that plane. In your case, we already discussed, it's too high on your fear. But for most people, what is one thing I can do that is opposite to what the anxiety is telling me to do? And the trick here is you don't want to go all or nothing. So if you're terrified of going on a date, okay, and you have a date schedule and the anxiety mandates you cancel and it's a third date you're going to cancel, what is opposite to completely canceling? Could you have a call with that person? Could you have a bunch of text messages? Could you try to say to that person, I would meet you for a coffee for 20 minutes, but I have to leave. Is there a way to go towards anxiety? instead of again. So, and, and the reason, I, uh, the last thing I'll say is the reason I like the idea of opposite action is because it makes it simpler. I don't want you to develop a whole hierarchy on the idea is just choose one thing that goes against what the anxiety is telling you to do. Because what is anxiety telling you to do? Let's just be real. Avoid. It's telling you to avoid. So go against it. But it doesn't mean you need to go against it. And I'm just accentuating something you've already said. It doesn't mean you need to go against it in a way that's going to completely short circuit your brain. It means wisely, carefully, cleverly titrating your response. So, yeah, if you're freaking out about going on the date, you don't have to actually go on the date, but you might call the person and take the risk of being honest and real and say, hey, I'm having some anxiety. Can we start on the phone and then go to a walk and then work our way up to dinner? Absolutely. In fact, you do not want, the same way we can't climb Everest overnight, just wake up and say, I'm going to climb Everest. Like we can't do all or not when it comes to things that are fear-based and training-based. And, and in here, we're training our brain that our perception of fear is just a perception, that there is no lion. And so you have to exercise your brain. And the only way to do is, is baby steps. If you take too big of a step, you crumble. And that's where I see a lot of people fail. It's like if I chose to go skydiving the first day that I chose to fight my fear of heights, I would not have gotten on that plane, right? I started with letters and other things. And the example is just to illustrate baby steps, just what can you actually handle? And there's a trick here. I, I didn't put this in the book, but I think it's really important. 
what can I handle? Can I do it now? Because often we start to ruminate about anxiety and then the anxiety just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you're going to choose to approach, is there one little thing that you could do now? I'm going to send a text right now to that person, just at least rescheduling that date instead of just canceling it. Because if you don't act now, it's kind of a form of avoidance because you'll just sit on it and it's almost a retreat. It's almost a retreat. And what it does is feel the anxiety. Just makes right. the anxiety worse, right? Because what we battle, most of us, with anxiety is what we call anticipatory anxiety. It's like you're anxious before you even get on that plane. The minute you heard that the plane was a small plane, I'm sure your brain went, this is not okay, right? And so like it, for the regular person, whenever you notice that, that you want to avoid, choose one little step, baby step. But I would do as soon as you can so that you're not feeding the monster, so to speak. What is the role of social support or other people in approaching? I can tell you that if I fly with my wife or my son, it is way easier for me to regulate than when I'm flying alone. Am I alone in that? No. Social support is the number one buffer against any kind of mental health problems. Across every research study that you look, you do all sorts of meta-analysis. So social support is super important right? And it can be helpful. The question is, when is somebody being supportive and there for you and propelling you towards your ultimate goals versus when are they enabling you to avoid, right? There's a scenario here that you can never fly again unless with your wife and your son. Well, that might be problematic. And so like, (laughs) maybe they can do it. In my family, we couldn't do it. And so I think there is a fine line between supporting and enabling And as long as there is a conversation about the ultimate goal and that we're still taking baby steps, I mean, that's in many ways the job of a therapist, right? Is to sort of support until you can do it by yourself. Yes. So it's helpful as training wheels, but you should not turn it into another form of avoidance. Which can quickly develop, yes. Yeah. My son has started referring to himself as daddy's emotional support animal. I was just going to say that that there's been something powerful for me about being open with my son about this panic because he's got his own anxieties and like, you know, having him watch me consistently forthrightly deal with it. Like we'll go to the mall sometimes because that's where Shake Shack is and he likes to have his burgers there. And he'll say, we can take the stairs if you want. I'll be like, no, we're going to take the elevator. I got to, I haven't taken the elevator in a couple of days. I got to do this. And, you know, we don't talk much about it, but he's just seeing me consistently take this on. And maybe this is wishful thinking, but I kind of hope that this is a good model for him in terms of the stuff that he's worrying about because he, he certainly has his anxieties. I think it's incredible. I think parents need to model that anxiety exists and there is a way out. So every time you take the elevator with him, you're basically saying, yes, I have anxiety, but guess what? I can approach. The reason I laughed so hard wasn't that is that, you know, my son is younger than yours. I have a five-year-old and we just set up this recording studio in my house and he decided he's going to record a podcast on Sunday night when I was getting ready. And so he sits here and he's speaking Portuguese. Otherwise, I'd send it to you. But he basically creates this podcast that he's singing the song of How Are You Feeling? And he goes, How are you feeling? How are you feeling? If you can't tell how you're feeling, nobody can help you. So you need to tell me how you're feeling so I can be helpful to you. <laughs> and I was like, Clearly, I've been talking about feelings a lot lately. <laughs> 
so that's why I laughed so hard. I saw Diego just doing this song and my family thought it was the funniest thing. They're like, he's a psychologist at five. I was like, well, we talk about feelings a lot. So yeah. I mean, he's definitely, he, he may be a psychologist, but he's what all kids are, are mimics of their parents. And so like, he's hearing you. Mm-hmm. He may be playing with his stickers or his blocks or his action figures, but he's hearing you. Oh yeah. My son turned to me the other day. I was trying to help him drill on layups and basketball. And I was talking to him. I was like, "This, you got to do this. You got to learn how to approach because you're too tentative on the court. And he was like, Daddy, don't give me a boring inspirational speech. <laughs> <laughs> they are amazing. They keep us sharp. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, sharp or humble. I don't know which both. All right. We've done shift. We've done approach. Is there more to say about approach before we move to the third step? No, I think we covered it. I think we're good on both. Okay, so the third step is maybe not going to be as obvious for people, but it is align. What do you mean by align? So align draws from what's known as acceptance and commitment therapy. And basically it's the idea that all of us have values, the things that are important to us, family, health, wisdom, et cetera. And that what we know is that actually aligning your actions, your daily actions with your values tend to decrease anxiety, stress, and lead to a more meaningful life. This is a skill that's interesting because I've talked about approach a lot and I've talked about shift a lot in my career. You know, you and I have talked about it many times. I had talked about a line a lot and I used with my patients, but I had never really thought about my values as much as I did when I hit the wall in Mass General. And I share this because values, it's so popular right now. We talk about values living and this and that, but like, what does it actually look like? And usually what it looks like is when you are having a really hard time. So for me, when I had this experience at Mass Channel, I remember just waking up in the morning and crying and somebody violated my trust. And I was so crushed then. Like there's this piece of me, it's like, why is this person doing this to me? I've dedicated my entire career to working for this person. Why is he saying that, you know, I did something wrong? I knew I hadn't done something wrong. But but even though I was on the right, I was really hurting. And in 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 the book, I talk about this. How do we identify our values and align? And one way to do it is to really look at pain. And, and, you know, the same way we want to run from anxiety, we want to run from pain. But pain is only there because something that matters to us is getting hurt. Let me say this in a different way. This guy who did something really mean to me violated my trust. If I didn't care about him, I'd say, hey, listen, I don't care about you, dude. But because I cared about the relationship and he violated a core trust, a core value trust, it crushed me. Right. And so that's a misaligned life. I was in a job working for somebody who violated my trust and was making it about me instead of looking at the values and like found a way to realign. So long, long answer to basically say align just means look at your values, identify them. Pain is one place you can identify them and then change your life. Like do things that are more aligned. Like I loved working with you, Dan, because that was a moment. I talked about flow earlier. That was a moment in alignment for me. I got to like show up fully as me. Hmm. So if you're living a false life where some part of your life just feels wrong, it's not what you want to be doing professionally, personally, you're in the wrong marriage, you're in the wrong relationship, you're in the wrong job, that can feed your anxiety. That magnifies your anxiety. 
magnifies. I'd say I've always been mildly anxious in that moment. It wasn't just anxiety, like everything starts to feel wrong. And then we avoid more. I mean, I put on 40 pounds after that thing, 40 pounds. And, you know, it's funny because the other day somebody says, well, do you binge eating? Do you... I exercise six days a week. I actually eat significantly healthy. But I can tell you this, when I get stressed, I can go on a diet and put on weight. It's the strangest thing. And to me, it was just stress. Stress was eating me alive because I was misaligned. Well, so you talked about changing your life. You didn't always occupy this sort of social strata, but, you, you know, you and I have pretty... Yeah, lucky lives. We have a lot of advantages. And so I've been able to make a lot of radical changes to my life, but not everybody has that option. So what do we say to folks who may feel, you know, legitimately trapped? You know, I think about that often because there are moments that you're trapped, but I don't believe anybody's trapped for a lifetime. And so let me answer this differently. In the beginning, my mom was trapped and had to do whatever it took to just put food on the table. Eventually, he moved towards things that she actually enjoyed doing more. So like she never enjoyed selling brooms or hangers, but she always loved sewing. And she found a way to slowly move from the things she had to do towards the things that she had to do, but were more aligned with her. And so you'd see a little more happiness, right? She was working late still, but I remember there's this I don't know the word in English, in Portuguese, it's mology. Basically, the, the things they used to cut the clothes. And I remember her like creating those things and cutting, but like now with a lot more happiness to them. And so, you know, in the inner city work that I work, I, I've seen janitors show up so happy because it was meaningful to them to have a place that was good for the kids that were there. And so I wonder if there is within places that we are trapped, if there was a way to find meaningful values in that, with the understanding and, and the reality that sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes life is shit. And you have to sort of do the best you can in those moments. But I, I don't know. I, I, I've seen people find meaning in things that are very little, that can really carry them forward. And I have to believe that there is a way out sometimes. Not always, though. I work in inner city. I've seen, you know, the worst. I work with young men coming out of prison. Sometimes there's no out, but I've seen some of them come out of it. So I think there's both sides of the coin there. That's what I'd say to them. I'm hearing some similarity between how we have to be careful and calibrated in our approach to things that scare us and how we have to be, given our life circumstances, strategic and stepwise in our approach toward building a life that aligns with our values. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm saying. There's this parallel. It's like, can we strategize our life? And in this case, the strategy is, can I think about how to do it in a value-driven way, the same way that if you're approaching, you have to be in a careful way. You ask a really compelling, provocative question, which is, what would your life look like if you did what mattered most to you? And if you asked me that question two years ago, I would have sort of created all sorts of answers, but not answered. Like that's what I'd had done. Today, I am absolutely living a life that matters most to me. Every moment of it. And I don't know where it's going to end up. I have dreams about where it's going to end up. But it was sitting in pain that allowed me to dream of it. 
It's a provocative question, as I said, and it's likely to make some people uncomfortable. <laughs> but I think it's a very healthy thought experiment. I think it's a trick of this book because, you know, the book, by definition, if I've done it well, should make people uncomfortable. And what do people want to do when they're uncomfortable? They want to avoid. So my fear is that people are going to just stop reading because they start reading about avoidance. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to see my own avoidance. <laughs> and so my hope is that people can, after COVID in particular, tolerate more discomfort enough that they at least get through the first two chapters. And, and I'd be happy if people can even understand that they're avoiding. That would make me so happy. Well, it's about understanding, like, which kind of suffering do you want? Because the, the suffering of having a small life the suffering of avoidance is, if you're looking at it correctly, in my opinion, worse than the suffering of approaching what scares you. Because approaching what scares you, yeah, it's scary by definition, but it's also, in my experience, like really thrilling to see that you can start to get over this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's empowering, isn't it? Yes. Like, the, you know, it, it's, you know, the parallel for sort of the fear that you're talking about for you, but like for me, like just showing up as me, like it took a little bit to find my voice, but now it's like, oh, I don't have to like be hiding anymore and I can approach it. And it's going to be scary, but like, it feels so good. Well, I think you're going to find that in the response to your book and the response to this interview and all of the other press that you'll do that, that you're going to get a positive reaction from people. And I mean, I, I have some experience here because, you know, when I you know, I was a very kind of generic cookie cutter anchorman for most of my adult life and then wrote this book, you know, that featured cocaine and panic attacks and lots of other embarrassing shit in it. And I was really worried, as was my mom, who begged me not to publish it, <laughs> that that it would ruin my career. But I, that risk completely paid off and in every way. And so I, I really have seen in my own experience in my own life and then watching it for other people that if you're real and people can animalistically sniff out phonies but if you're real you know it, it's likely to to work to your advantage thank you it's interesting because this piece of me because now i'm living the life that i really want to live and i'm doing the things i really want to do i really hope that that's the case but like there's this part of me that just feels so proud that the little girl in brazil got to harvard and got a voice and perhaps can help people that like i just i feel good about it no matter what no matter what. Right. Well, good. Yeah. That's the right attitude. And I, I think that pride is absolutely justified for whatever it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. On this issue of alignment, you use a couple of terms that I just want to get you to talk about a little bit. One is golden circle. What is that? So Simon Sinek talks about the golden circle. And if you really want to know a lot about the golden circle, you can, of course, read his books, which are amazing. I love his books. But it's the idea of really starting with why, going to how and what. And the way I use this in the book is really understanding your values before you do anything in your life. So often people are so focused on what they do, what they do, what they do. But why are you doing what you do? And then if you know that why, then you can come up with a clear how and what, right? So for me, my value was ambition, ambition, ambition. Once I hit the wall, I was like, what do I care about? It was like impact, okay? What do I mean by impact? The world is hurting right now in terms of mental health. I want to find a way to bring that temperature down, okay? And what do I do? Well, what I do is what, what I do. I'm a psychologist. I use science. How do I create that impact? That's when I got to you and you said you should write this book, right? So that is alignment. I had a clear why. 
a clear how and a clear what. And in the book, I talk about in the alignment that you should then do the when. You need to schedule your alignment. It doesn't show up in your life, by the way. The gym doesn't knock and the things that matter don't appear. My grandmother used to say this, you want to date, you have to get out in the world and it has to be planned because people just don't knock on your door. Like you have to, to schedule things. And so that's an aligned life for me, using the golden circle to really create a plan for your life. Let me ask you a question that I've wrestled with a lot. I think I've kind of come to an answer on this, but motivation is tricky. So you said you found your why and its impact, but you know, I, I could say the same thing for myself, but if I'm really honest, you know, I also like getting paid and I like getting attention. So I have some whys that are, you know, more embarrassing to talk about, but are there. Doesn't mean I don't care about impact. I care about it deeply. So how do you balance all of that without feeling like the thing's polluted? I've wrestled the same thing many times. You know, there's one thing that I tell, I've said this to my colleagues a bunch of times. I don't know why wealth or getting paid or having a meaningful salary such a bad thing, just to start with, like just level the playing field. And I'm not saying that you have to become a billionaire, but like, I didn't have food before. I know what that feels like. I'm never going back there. And so if I told you that having a very good paycheck that supports me and my family is not important, I'd be lying, right? So like, it's not that that value doesn't matter. It's just not the value driving me most of the time. Now, if you ask me, you know, I have two speaking opportunities and one of them is going to pay this much, 100, the other one is going to pay 10. Depends if I take the 10 based on impact. Sometimes I will choose to take the 10. If, you, if I get invited to speak to a nonprofit in inner city that pays nothing right now, but gets my buck into kids, that's impact and that's not wealth. And as long as it's balancing it out, I feel okay. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other in my brain. That's why I think flexibility helps. I don't know if I'm answering. I'm, I'm that's how I wrestled with it. Flexibility makes a lot of sense. I mean, it goes to the fact that this is a bit of a messy process. You know, we can tell ourselves that our lives are about these big ideals and they are, but they're also about like, you know, I want a nice vacation and I want to be respected by my peers. And, and I don't think it's helpful to deny that those motivations are there. And so that's why flexibility, balance, honesty with yourself and others, all of that seems important. Yeah, I mean, you have to choose the value that you're after today, this week, in this season of your life, but they have to have a collection of them, right? It can't just be one thing running your life all the time because I think it'd be boring and scary, quite honestly. To me, it doesn't feel like a aligned, meaningful life. By the way, impact doesn't mean you're wearing a hair shirt and living in poverty. You can have impact on yourself. I mean, you're included in the goal. And so you are helping a lot of people uh, just literally right now. And it also helps you. Well, that's fine. The expression I sometimes use is it can be a beneficial double helix, you know, mutually reinforcing. I don't think you can live your values just for others. I think the first ways to apply to yourself. I mean, since I hit the wall, I've been going to the gym. I lost 50 pounds. I'm the healthiest I've ever been in my life. And that was the first impact I needed to be out in the world and be able to talk about impact for others. Let me close by asking you about something that you close your book on, which is this notion of becoming bold by being the water, not the rock. What's that all about? You know, this, this interview feels a lot like my grandmother, but that's where it started. So I have to go there. Actually, I'm, I will start where, where I see my patients and where I've been before. Whenever 
there was obstacles. Whenever there was change, whenever we're in transition, and the world is in a big transition still in my mind, often I feel like we're doing two things. We're like trying to hold on to the old and grabbing for the new and basically being stuck in place. We're not living. We're sort of afraid of doing either. And my grandmother called that being the rock, that when adversity, challenge, transitions, you just stay put and you're like, hold on to your views of the world. You don't actually want to listen to anything else. What you know to be truth is the only truth and there's nothing else. The opposite of that in her mind was a life where you are the water, right? The water is not a solid and it can go around underneath. It can go, you know, beneath. It can shape that rock, so to speak. And that has been how I've lived my life. You know, in fact, I think that's why I survived so long in academia. The first day I got to Mass General, I asked the chief, I said, you know, how do you get your own research lab here? And he laughed at me. He's like, you just got in. Like, that takes years. But I did it in six or seven. Like, I just went around and went around and I went around. And people would say, you can't do it. And I was like, well, how do I do it? And so behind that, It's flexibility, it's cognitive flexibility. If you know your values and you can think about how to align with them, it's not a straight path. I guess that's that's really the best thing to say this. There is no straight train in life that goes from A to B and you arrive, you check a box and it's done. Like it's gonna be a winding kind of road, but if you flow with it, at least for me, it feels so much better. Agreed. Is there something I should have asked but failed to ask? I don't think that's possible. (laughs) You're like the wizard of asking questions, so no. Before I let you go, can you please just remind everybody of the name of your book and any other, you know, work you've created that you want people to know about? So the book is called Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. You can find out more about it at www.drluana.com backslash book. All the speaking engagements will be there as well. And I have a course on resilience coming out in June with Harvard edX. Um, super excited about that. And I'm very proud of the course on anxiety that we created. So if somebody hasn't done it yet, you should definitely check it out. It's on your app. And just to point out to people, there's a previous book called Almost Anxious. There's a previous book, Almost Anxious, and it's the parallel of Dan saying being a vanilla anchorman, as I said, that was the vanilla Luana. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So go with Bold Move instead. I think it's a much better book. (laughs) Okay. Luana, congratulations again on this book and thanks for coming on. Great job. Thank you, Dan. Delighted to be here. Thanks again to Dr. Luana Marquez. Thank you to you for listening and thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make this show a reality. 10% Happier is produced by Justine Davey, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. We get our scoring and mixing from Peter Bonaventure over at Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of one of my favorite bands, Islands, delivered our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai. 
And I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.